Welcome. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers. If this is your first time at Clear Creek, we are so glad that you're with us today. And welcome to part seven of our series, Practicing the Way. We're talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ in everyday life. And really, not simply in a practical, how do we just kind of live like Jesus, but how do we be like Jesus from the inside out. So we're going to get back into that this morning in just a second. But first, I have some cool stuff I want to share with you today. First off, if you're a guest, we want you to know the reason we're here, the reason we get up in the morning, the reason we do what we do is we exist to reach the next person for Jesus. Why? Because we believe every person matters to God. And so we want them to know Jesus Christ. Let's dive in today with a prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning and the gift of Jesus Christ who welcomes us into his family. As we come into the text, would you go before us and make a way? Holy Spirit, would you give me eyes to see something fresh even now as we study? Would you give each of us eyes to see and hearts to receive that Jesus, you may be seen as great and that we may become more like you? We pray this now in the name of Jesus and all who genuinely agree with that desire, amen. Well, here we are, one more week after today, and then we jump into Advent. Advent, by the way, is the season uh, celebrating the coming of Christ at birth and the remembrance that he will come again. So we're coming close to the end of this series called Practicing the Way, which is looking at 15 core practices that have been used throughout church history to help Christians... Become like Jesus Christ. Now you say practicing the way, if you're new, what does that mean? Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And those earliest followers called themselves followers of the way or followers of Jesus. And those who organize their lives around the practices of Jesus are those who are practicing the way. And here's been the really good, big news. If you're like me and you grew up in the church your whole life and you don't look the way you wish you did some days. And you're like, man, do I just need to try harder? Here's the good news. You and I can effortlessly become like Jesus. How? By arranging our lives around the same activities that Jesus arranged his life around. You want to be a concert pianist? You don't just sit down one day and try really, really hard. No, no, no. You sit down daily and throughout your life, organize your life around what it looks like to be a concert pianist. And eventually, what would have been impossible to play just trying hard becomes effortless as you've organized your life around this way of being. Same when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. And so we've been looking at these 15 practices really from a wonderful little book by a man named Dallas Willard. And the book is called The Spirit of the Disciplines. It's a great little book. I want to give credit to whom credit is due. So today, a lot of the content's coming directly from that book, as well as from notes and some talks from a man named John Ortberg. But today we're going to look at the remaining three of what he calls the practices of abstinence. Now, what he does is he divides, if you will, he divides the different practices into two sections. Practices of abstinence, that's these on the left. And those are the practices that we abstain from. We don't do certain things. And then practices of engagement. And we've been looking at those primarily over the past few weeks. Those are the practices where we do stuff, whether it's study or worship or serve others or fellowship with brothers and sisters. Today, we're going to finish with these last three. Now, I'm going to say something to you. I need you to listen very, very carefully. I have found in my own life that I, the practices I am least interested in doing are precisely the practices that will help me the most. Anyone understand where I'm coming from on that? It's the guy who hates broccoli that probably needs to eat a little bit more broccoli. You get me? 
And so because of that, if you today hear any one of these three and you kind of push against it, think on that for a moment. Is there a reason maybe you push against it? Is there something that God is calling you into to bring freedom into your life? And we're doing three of them, so that way you can try at least one of them this week. So if two don't really meet you where you're at, try one of them. Okay, here we go. Take a deep breath. Here's the first one. Chastity. Anyone in here ready to go on home like right now? It's like, great, what is this going to be about? Take a deep breath. This is actually one of the most freeing things that I have found in my own life and hopefully you'll find in yours as well. Before I tell you what chastity is, I need to do a quick little disclaimer on it. Sometimes people will say, oh no, is this one of those anti-sex, anti-pleasure, God doesn't want us to have fun kind of things? In fact, sometimes my non-Christian friends will tell me, and I have plenty of them, they'll say, Diggs, God doesn't want us to have fun. He's a killjoy. He is anti-sex. He is anti-pleasure. And whenever they say that, I'll say, no, he's not. And then they say, yes, he is. I'll say, no, he's not. And they say, yes, he is. And we'll kind of go back and forth for a while. I don't mind doing that because I'm paid by the hour. And so we can just kind of go on and on. It's not a problem. But the reality is, God is not anti-sex. God came up with it. It was his idea. In fact, the ancient rabbis talk about the 613 laws of the Old Testament Torah. And they will point out that the very first law that God ever gives us is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, how can you be fruitful and multiply? Well, answer, sex. And if you're going to fill the whole earth with lots of people, you're going to have to have lots and lots and lots of sex. So hear me first, friends. I don't know what you've been taught, but God is not anti-sex or pleasure. He does, however, want us to enjoy it in the proper context. And our world wants us to enjoy it in every place other than its proper context. So here's what chastity is, according to Dr. Willard. In chastity, we purposely turn away from dwelling upon or engaging in the sexual dimension of our relationships to others, even our husband or our wives, for a set period of time. He goes on, sexuality is one of the most powerful and subtle forces in human nature, and the percentage of human suffering tied directly to it is horrifying. The human abuse stemming from sex, both outside of and within marriage, makes it imperative that we learn, quote, how to possess our vessel in sanctification and in honor. That's first, or that is Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he finishes with these words. And an essential part of this learning, learning how to control those desires consists in the practice of abstaining from sex and from indulging in sexual feelings and thoughts and thus learning how to not be governed, that's a key word, governed by them. Why is this so, so important? Sexual addiction, the rampant presence of pornography, the sexualization of our children and the confusion around sex and gender in our country are epidemic. And all this comes from putting sex at the center of our lives and our identities. And on the other hand, the church has has not always done a very good job of talking about sex in a redemptive way. After all, you'll hear things growing up like sex is dirty, it's gross, it's ugly. Save it for the one you love. Really? In fact, there are three common views when it comes to sex. This all frames the reason why this is so valuable. Our culture will tell you that sex is God. It is the most important thing about you and the most important thing for you to enjoy or to do. That's why so much of our culture is so focused on what you express yourself and how you look. 
On the other extreme, you have in some churches this idea that sex is not God, but sex is gross. I think about John Ortberg. He tells a story about his dad, John Sr. He grew up in a very strict uh, Swedish home where they never talked about sex. And the only sexual education that his parents gave him was right before he went off to college. His mom said to him, be careful, John. There are bad girls at college. And John thought, well, who are they? And where can they be found? After all, that sounds like fun. And that's not a very healthy way to be raised, is it? But there's this beautiful middle ground. This is the way that God defines it. Sex is not God. Sex is not gross. But sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the confines of God's design. So, why is chastity such a good practice I would say for all of us, but some of us in particular, perhaps today. Number one, chastity frees us. Remember, all of these practices are about freedom. Chastity frees us from being controlled by our sexual appetites. Being freed from the things that often control us. Jesus makes this very beautiful statement, but it's a difficult one. He says in Matthew chapter 5, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That means sexual expression outside of marriage. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, meaning there's something going on inside, this person has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus is bringing to bear this idea that we are to be people not controlled by our thoughts or by our feelings in any area of life but that we get to, by the power of God, control them. And some of you know the pain of being controlled by this very strong urge. It has taken you down some very dark paths, some secret paths, and you would give almost anything to be able to be free from it. One of the first steps may be this practice. So what is it? How do we do it? I want to give you a very simple way. And by the way, I want to say this as well. If at any point you find yourself struggling with any of the things we're talking about, you come see one of the ministers or one of the elders. We would love to walk with you. We do this regularly because we are not meant to simply learn about it here, but to live it out there together. So here's how. When you feel drawn to focus on the attractiveness of somebody's body, instead, gently reset your attention on God. Now, this is a very interesting thing. This brings us back to a common dynamic we've discussed already. It's the principle of indirection. The principle of indirection. What does that mean? It means often we gain strength or we gain uh, mastery over something, not by trying really, really hard by focusing on it, but rather by doing something else. Let me give you a very simple example today. Let's just say for a moment, I tell you, whatever you do, do not think about cupcakes. Whatever you do, do not think about their pillowy fluffiness or the sweet confection on top. Don't think about the colors or the shapes or the texture. Don't think about cupcakes. Whatever you do, don't think about them. What are you going to think about? Cupcakes. And by the way, I don't like cupcakes. Here's why. I feel like someone is trying to limit my portion size and the amount of icing I can enjoy. But the way that you... Don't think about cupcakes is not by talking more about cupcakes. The way that you and I overcome certain areas of struggle is not by saying, I won't think about it, I won't think about it, I won't think about it. Instead, we redirect our attention to something else, something nobler, something better. And the call of the Christian is when you find yourself going down one mental path, you have the freedom to think about something else. 
What does it mean to live in the presence of God today? What does it mean to be on purpose for the Lord today? This is the way that I would encourage you to begin. So this week, you may want to say, all right, when those moments come, when those thoughts come, I will begin to practice redirection. I will think about something else. I will reassert my attention somewhere else. Now, if this practice doesn't hit you today, no problem. We've got two more. You ready? Let's go with number two. The second one is the practice of secrecy. Everyone say secrecy. Now, this one is one of those that's kind of a weird one if you are not familiar with the scriptures. So I want to walk you through this very briefly. What is secrecy? Willard writes, in secrecy, we abstain, there it is again, we abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known. In other words, all the good things that you do, the stuff that you could really say, look at me, look at my doctorate, look at my master's degree, look at my achievements, look at my position. Instead of publicly saying, look at me, we choose not to. Now, why is this so very, very important and very helpful? Let me give you a couple of things. Number one, secrecy frees us, so important, from the hunger for fame, justification, or the attention of others. Secrecy frees us from the hunger for fame, justification, or the attention of of others. One last thing, or another way to put this would be say, secrecy frees us from approval addiction and image management. Have you ever found that you just want people to think you're great? I have. It happens almost every Sunday when I'm up here. That little voice in the back of my head says, I wonder what they think. Is this going okay? Are they engaged? Oh no, I see someone sleeping. Should I call that person out? By the way, I've said that before, and then I've seen many of you kind of do this in the middle of the sermon. Who is it? But we all struggle with this, don't we? From time to time, wishing others thought differently of us or better of us. Willard goes on to say this, as we practice this discipline, we learn to love, to be unknown, and even to accept misunderstanding without the loss of our peace, joy, or purpose. Have you ever had someone accuse you of something or misunderstand something about you and it just took up free real estate in your head all day long? Secrecy is one of the ways that we can begin to not be controlled by the approval of others or dealing with our image management issues. He goes on with this statement. In the practice of secrecy, we experience a continuing relationship with God. Keyword, independent of the opinions of others. Oh, to be free and to say, because of who God has made you, you are no better no worse because of what someone else says about you. To be free, to fully be you, the goofiness and the greatness, because God has made you who you are and to not be concerned with what others say. This is what Jesus actually talks about. If you'll remember, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6 when he talks about this idea of secrecy. Now, let me, before I go there, explain. Once again, this is the principle of indirection. I cannot become less concerned with how you think of me if I'm always promoting myself to you. So, once again, the way that I am freed from this is to practice secrecy where I do not promote myself. I do not communicate all the great things that I could say to you about me. And in so doing, I begin to be free of what you think about me. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 6, when you give or when you pray, do it in secret. Don't make a big show of it. See, in their day, when someone wanted to show how good they were, they did something about God in front of others. Uh, Their culture was surrounded or circled or centered on God. 
And so giving to the church or the temple, praying out loud, that was a sign of you're a pretty great person. In our culture, that's not centered around God, but around finances, around education, around other things. There are other ways we can celebrate our greatness and our bigness, isn't there? Look at me because of my car. Look at me because of my job. Look at me because fill in the blank. So whatever it may be in our culture, different from Christ's, do it in secret. These are the words of Jesus when he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Key word, someone's going to see you. The question is who? So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. By the way, in the ancient world, people would actually hire people to go in front of them with trumpets and other loud noises say, look how great I am. Can you imagine a world like that where you might promote yourself in front of other people and use others to do it? I can't imagine a culture that would try to influence others, almost like influencers with what they do. But I digress. When you fast, meaning when you don't eat, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. Don't try to look like you're doing something spiritual. And Jesus is saying this not to lay a burden on us. Now, some of you, If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll say, wait a minute, is this a new law? Is Jesus coming up with something new? Because after all, in the Old Testament, King David, when they were celebrating the preparation of trying to build this temple, he actually tells all the people, I'm giving this to God, and he makes a big show of it to encourage them, and the people cheer. So is Jesus saying something else? No, no, no. David is not contradicting Jesus, and Jesus is not contradicting the actions of David. Jesus is simply saying, if you struggle with image management and the approval of others, then this practice is a really good idea to free you from those things. And Jesus goes on to say, anyone who lives for the praise of others to show off what they have done, those kind of people have already received the reward in full. Now, what is that reward? What does it mean that someone has received a reward in full when it comes to showing off? What is the reward? Attaboy, good job. We're so proud of you. Now, I used to think when I heard this that Jesus was saying, all right, I've got a gold star for you. And if you don't tell anyone what you're doing, I'm going to give you this gold star. But as soon as you give anyone else knowledge of what you're doing, I'm going to take the gold star away. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. Jesus is saying this is a principle for spiritual development, that if you're living for the approval of others, you are a slave to what others think. Your highs are based on what they say, and your lows are based on what they say to you, aren't they? It's not that God is withholding good things. You're rather withholding the gift of freedom that God wants to give you. Instead, there is a reward that God wants to give each one of us as we practice freedom, and it is the beautiful gift of freedom. That comes from secrecy. So let me give you a few ways to do this very quickly. If you want to jot these down, uh, these are some ways that many people have found to be very helpful. Number one, give generously and anonymously. Don't make a big deal about it when you give. A second option would be to serve without telling others. You don't have to post it online. You don't have to share it with everyone that you know. Number three, when you accomplish something, don't tell others. You don't have to tell everyone everything that you've ever done. By the way, it's always funny to me. Have you seen some of those? And by the way, I would probably do this if I had accomplished this as well. So just being honest here. Have you ever seen someone who's run a marathon and they have that wonderful little marathon sticker that shows how far they've run? Anyone seen one of those? 
And no judgment. In fact, my favorite one was I saw a guy, he had one that was 0.0 on the back of his vehicle. I'm like, that's my guy right there. I've run nowhere, I've done it never, and I'm okay with it. But there are times that we do things and we want to say, look how great I am. Just practice not doing that. Number four would be, and I love this one, cheer on someone that they've done something really, really great. I love what Willard says. He says, if you want to experience the flow of love as never before, the next time you are in a competitive situation, pray that the others around you will be more outstanding, more praised, more used of God than yourself. Really pull for them and rejoice for their success. If Christians were universally to do this for each other, the earth would soon be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. The discipline of secrecy can lead us into this sort of wonderful experience. So find ways to celebrate others, to cheer them on. And the last one is just to refrain from posting about yourself on social media for a month or a week. Pick a time frame. These are some practices that will feel awkward at first. And over time, though, you will find that you care less and less what other people think and you'll be more enthralled by what God says. Now, are you with me? Everyone say yes if you're with me because we're about done. You with me? Okay, here we go. Let's go number 13. Some of you are saying, okay, great. Chastity and secrecy. Give us a real good one to end on. All right, the last one is sacrifice. <clears throat> some of you are going, man, this is a bummer. Hang with me. This one, it sits at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because sacrifice is at the heart of Jesus. This is what Willard says sacrifice is. In the discipline of sacrifice, and some of you may choose to practice this or be called by God to practice this. In the discipline of sacrifice, we abstain from the possessions or enjoyment of what is necessary for our living. The discipline of sacrifice is one in which we forsake the security of meeting our needs with what is in our hands. Now, this is unlike frugality, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Remember, frugality, you have excess money, excess stuff, so you buy excess things. This is, I don't have excess. If I don't use this for me, I don't have That's what sacrifice is. And that is the next step. In fact, there are many examples throughout the scriptures of people who practice sacrifice, either voluntarily or called by God. Do you remember a father by the name of Abraham? Do you remember the moment where he was called to sacrifice who? Do you know? Yeah, his son. Now, the twist of the story is at the end on the mountain... When he was about to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord, by the way, most scholars believe that the angel of the Lord there is referring to Jesus himself, appears to Abraham and says, don't do it. I will make another way. And he did make another way on another hill in a few years, centuries later, didn't he? You have another story of sacrifice. Jesus sees this woman standing there at the temple going up to give, and she gives the last two coins to her possession. And Jesus blown away by this generosity because of sacrifice. So why in the world would anyone want to sacrifice? How does it help us become like Jesus? Sacrifice, write this down, sacrifice frees us from trusting in what we have, whether it be money, comfort, or health. And it reaffixes our eyes on eternity. It reaffixes our eyes on eternity that this world is not all there is. This is not the end. This is only the brief dress rehearsal before eternity, friends. 
And in sacrifice, we remind ourselves that we live for something much bigger and grander and far beyond this. Now, I wish I could tell you how to practice it, but there is no way for me to tell you how it looks like in your life. Instead, I just want to read to you a story. You ready for a little story time? We're going to do a little story time, and and then we're going to reflect for a moment together as believers in Jesus. This story comes from a man named Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? It's called Babette's Feast. It is the story of a strict, joyless, religious community in the far north of Europe, led by a very strict old pastor who had two young, beautiful daughters who feel unable to plunge into lives of joy because of their sense of obligation to their father and to this joyless little community. Eventually, he dies, and the daughters are now middle-aged spinsters, and they have to carry on the mission. But something unexpected happens in the middle of it all. Yancey writes these words. Without his stern leadership, the sect splintered badly. One brother bore a grudge against another concerning their business matter. Rumors spread about a a 30-year-old sexual affair involving two of the members. A pair of old ladies had not spoken to each other for a decade. But although the sect still met on the Sabbath and sang the old hymns, only a handful bothered to attend, and the music had lost its luster. One night, a night too rainy for anyone to venture on the muddy streets, the sisters heard a heavy thump at the door. And what we find is that a young girl had collapsed on the threshold. Her name was Babette. She had to escape from a war in France because her family was in danger, and she had been directed to this little community. She was a cook, we find out. The sisters had no money to pay Babette and felt dubious about employing a maid in the first place. They distrusted her cooking. Didn't the French eat horses and frogs? But through gestures and pleading, Babette softened their hearts. She would do any chore in exchange for room and board. And for the next 12 years, Babette worked for the sisters. The first time Martine, that's the name of one of the sisters, the others was Philippa. The first time Martine showed her how to split a cod and cook the gruel, Babette's eyebrows shot upward and her nose wrinkled a little. But she never once questioned her assignment. She fed the poor people of the town and took over all housekeeping chores. She even helped with Sabbath services. Everyone had to agree that Babette brought new life to the stagnant community. Since Babette never referred to her past life in France, it came as a great surprise to Martine and Philippa when one day after 12 years she received her very first letter. Babette read it, looked up to see the sisters staring at her, and announced, matter of fact, that a wonderful thing had happened to her. Each year, a friend in Paris had renewed Babette's number in the French lottery. This year, her ticket had won 10,000 francs. The sisters pressed Babette's hand in congratulations, but inwardly, (laughs) their hearts sank. As it happened, Babette's winning the lottery coincided with the very time the sisters were discussing a celebration to honor the 100th anniversary of their father's birth. Babette came to them with a request. In 12 years, I have asked nothing of you, she began, but now I have a request. I would like to prepare the meal for the anniversary service. I would like to cook for you a real French dinner. What the sisters did not know was that back in the day, Babette had been the head chef at the premier luxury hotel in France. Although the sisters had grave misgivings about this plan, Babette was certainly right that she had asked no favors in 12 years. What choice had they but to agree? When the money arrived from France, Babette went away briefly to make arrangements for the dinner. 
Over the next few weeks, the residents, who were treated to one amazing sight after another, as boats docked to unload provisions for Babette's kitchen. They pushed wheelbarrows loaded with crates of small birds. Cases of champagne, champagne, and wine soon followed. The entire head of a cow, fresh vegetables, truffles, pheasants, hams, strange creatures that lived in the sea, a huge tortoise still alive and moving his steak-like head from side to side. All these ended up in the sister's kitchen, now firmly ruled by Babette. Martine and Philippa, alarmed over this apparent witch's brew, explained their predicament to the members of the sect, now old and gray, and only 11 in number. Everyone clucked in sympathy. After some discussion, they agreed to eat the French meal, withholding comment about it, lest Babette get the wrong idea. After all, tongues were meant for praise and thanksgiving, not for indulging in exotic tastes. So they would eat the meal. They just wouldn't thank her for it. Although no one other than for one character spoke of the food or drink, gradually the banquet worked its magical effect on the churlish villagers. Their blood warmed. Their tongues loosened. They spoke of the old days when the dean was alive and of Christmas the year the bay froze. The brother who had cheated another on a business deal finally confessed, and the two women who had feuded found themselves conversing. A woman burped, and the brother next to her said without thinking, Hallelujah! Yancey goes on to say Babette's feast ended with two scenes. Outside, the old-timers join hands around the fountain and lustily sing the old songs of faith. It is a communion scene. Babette's feast opened the gate and grace stole in. They felt as if they had indeed had their sins washed white as wool and in this regained innocent attire were gambling like little lambs. The final scene, however, takes place inside in the wreck of a kitchen piled high with unwashed dishes, greasy pots, shells, carapaces, grisly bones, broken crates, vegetable trimmings, and empty bottles. Babette sits amid the feast, looking as wasted as the night she arrived 12 years before. Suddenly, the sisters realize that in accordance with the vow, no one has spoken to Babette of the dinner. It was quite a nice dinner, Babette, they said. Babette seems far away. After a while, she says to them, I was once a cook at the Café Inglés. We will all remember this evening when you have gone back to Paris, Babette. Babette tells them that she will not be going back to Paris. All her friends and relatives there have been killed or imprisoned. And of course, it would be expensive to return to Paris. But what about the 10,000 francs, the sisters ask? Then Babette drops the bombshell. She had spent her winnings, every last franc of the 10,000 she won, on the feast they had just devoured. Don't be shocked, she tells them. That is what a proper dinner for 12 costs at the Café Inglés. He ends with this. Grace came to them in the form of a feast, Babette's feast, a meal of a lifetime lavished on those who had in no way earned it. I can't tell you what sacrifice looks like for you, but I can tell you at the heart of the gospel is sacrifice. Not Babette's feast, but at Jesus' feast. And this is why our Savior says these familiar words. My command is this. Love each other. Just love each other as I have loved you. 
greater love has no one than this to lay down your life for one's friends. God will show you what it means to sacrifice for the brothers and sisters around you today. And when he does, listen. In so doing, you may find grace in your life and bring it to those around you.